The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today's guest really can do it all. Sings in a variety of styles, pianist, vocal instructor, reality TV contestant, motivational speaker. This guy does it all. Countertenor John Holiday is currently in Utah singing the role of the refugee in flight. And we are thrilled that he made the time to join us for podcast today. Welcome, John. Hi, everybody. Now, John and I have known each other for a while. You were uh, an apprentice at Santa Fe Opera 12, 10, 11 years ago, right? 11 years ago. I think 2011 was Gosh, it just feels like Griselda. yesterday. Yes, for Griselda. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, countertenor is a voice type that a lot of our listeners may not really be familiar with. It's very unusual. It, if you wanted to define it quite simply, you would say it's a cis male singer who sings in a mezzo-soprano range. But there's much more to it, isn't there? How did totally. you discover that countertenor was where you wanted to live? You know, ever since I was really, really young, I've always been, in fact, I was talking about this last night with Elise and uh, Deanne. And but, Elise uh, and Deanne are, are uh, colleagues in the flight production. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I always sang really high as a kid. I mean, of course, as a kid, you you basically are a treble anyway, treble voice, you know, soprano or, or alto. And then once I got into junior high school, I was still a soprano. I was in a boys choir and I sang in church choir and I was always a soprano. Then in high school, I started high school as a soprano. And then I switched my sophomore, junior and senior year to be a, the, the tenor one section because uh, some of the upperclassmen, their their mothers were upset that I was getting the solos as a soprano. And then <laughs> what, what was funny about it is that even as a tenor, I, <laughs> I still got the solos. Um, but That's because you were the real thing. Tenor. You know, I thought I thought I was doing my best. My grandmother always says, Big Mama always says, do your best and let God do the rest. So <laughs> I always did do that. Uh, but I discovered early on that I had this facility and it was easy. It didn't didn't have a break or anything like that. So I went to college as a tenor um, because I didn't know what a counter tenor was. I'd never really heard the term before until I sang for my teacher, Barbara Hill Moore, who's a distinguished professor and a senior associate uh, dean of faculty at Southern Methodist University, the Middle School of the Arts. And she said, you're a countertenor. And I said, yep, okay, that's what it is. And then uh, what she was really adamant about, which I am so thankful for, is that she said, well, if you're going to be a countertenor, then you're not going to do all this switching back and forth because it's just like a muscle. You have to build the muscle. You have to continually work on it. And uh, the, the more you work, the easier it'll, it'll be. Not that it was difficult, but just that it was training the muscles for ease and for comfort and all of that. So, uh, so yeah, I would say officially the end of my freshman year going into my sophomore year, I switched to become a countertenor. So you didn't spend a, long a lot answer. of time. No, no, it's great. You didn't spend a lot of time trying to squeeze yourself into the mold of tenor, though. Just a no, few years. no, just a few years. I was just like, ah, oh, this is not what I think I want to do. And I knew that my voice felt better. You know, it felt more 
real and authentic for me to be a countertenor than it did for me to be a tenor. Although I could sing as a tenor, it was fine. It just felt to me better, actually, as a, as a, as a countertenor. You know, John, I'm fascinated by the history of your voice type because, you know, it's a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of people's understanding of the voice type. Countertenors have been around for a long time, obviously, but it was really the 20th century that the voice type type kind of made its mark in the opera world. And I think that was probably with Britain and he, yep. when he wrote, when he wrote for Alfred Deller as uh, of course, Oberon. Yep. I mean, how do you feel about that history and how recent it is? And the fact that countertenors have frankly kind of become rock stars in the opera world. If, when, <laughs> when a production of Akhenaten happens, people go almost <laughs> solely because of that voice type. I think it's really cool to be a part of a voice type uh, that kind of commands attention, if you will. People really do look forward to, to hearing the voice. And I think the really amazing thing about it is that the countertenor voice is this supernatural, this supernatural instrument, this otherworldly instrument. And I think that that's one of the things that makes people become really enamored by and enamored with the voice type. Uh, and certainly the rock star status, you know, has, has roots you know, in the Baroque era, you know, where there were so many castrati, thank God we don't have to be castrated anymore, oh but, <laughs> uh, but so many castrati were the rock stars of their generation. I mean, we have Farinelli and Finesino and all these wonderful, these wonderful, wonderful singers. So I, I find it really cool that I joined the ranks of being a rock star countertenor as, as these guys were. Well, with all voice types, I think singers have to balance very interesting careers. You not only travel a lot and perform all over the world, you're, I'm sure, maintaining a vibrant and active studio as well. And I'm sure because of your voice type, there's a voice type, there's a lot of young singers that are interested in getting time with you. What are the challenges of having that life both on the road, but trying to stay anchored as a teacher as well? Yeah, that is a challenge. I'm currently associate professor of music uh, and voice at the Conservatory of Music at Lawrence University. And I love it so very much. It's a big part of my life. And partially, I think that it's such a huge part of my life because I come from a family of teachers. My grandmother, who I lovingly called Big Mama, was a teacher uh, for many, 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 many years, retired from teaching literature, social studies and English. And then her sister, my Aunt Brenda, was also a teacher. She taught elementary education for years. Aunt Brenda's children were teachers. Uh, and I am the only one of my grandmother's uh, grandchildren that is a teacher. I taught high school and junior high school for a year and a half where I taught choir and voice. And of course, still uh, teaching, teaching voice at the university. And I started in academia at Ithaca College uh, where I taught for two years. And I think that the challenges of being a professor and also being on the road is sometimes I'm not on campus, but even when I'm not on campus, long before the pandemic, I taught on Zoom or FaceTime, mostly Zoom because Zoom has the recording feature. So I, I make my students when I'm away, well, even when I'm at home, uh, they journal about their, their lessons, what they hear, what they've learned, what they uh, what we missed in a lesson. You know, if I missed something, what did I miss that you that you heard that I didn't hear? Uh, but I love it. It, it. it becomes challenging only because sometimes I am not on campus. But other than that, I always tell my students, to me, it feels as if I'm actually right there, even though I'm on uh, on a screen. My students, you know, I have it where it's set up that I show up on the big screen TV in my office. Uh, my studio on campus and they show up on my computer 
Uh, so for me, it's like I'm right there and they're in front of me as well. Um, one of the challenges I think of teaching, especially when you're a singer, is sometimes, although I don't have this issue, uh, is sometimes when you're when you're a singer, sometimes it's really difficult for you to divorce the singer from the teacher. And you have to honestly teach. You have to be a pedagogue and only model when you need to. And when I say modeling for everybody out there who's listening, if my students can't do something or they're not understanding what I'm saying, I will model it with my own voice or down the octave what I mean for them. But I try to do that very seldomly because I want them to be their own person. I want them to have their own voice and not to emulate and try to sound like me because I want them to have their own unique sound. And I've been really lucky to have fantastic singers. And I think that they feel really blessed and lucky to have me as a teacher. And, and I tell you, it really is, uh, the sentiment goes both ways. They are really, really fortunate to have you in in their lives. And I love the, that you have them come to the studio and have the lessons with you on the big screen because I think that also being in a different venue not doing it from your bedroom makes a huge difference with the the energy you bring to the lesson space totally totally you're so right about that let's take a quick break and we'll come right back with John Holiday. whether under the stars among red rocks or inside Capitol Theater or Bravanel Hall the Utah Symphony and Utah Opera connect people through the power of live music performed by world-class talent. Learn more about our curated subscription packages or design your own package at usuo.org slash subscribe. John, you are such a versatile singer. I mean, I've heard you sing uh, gospel. I've heard you sing R&B. Anyone who watches uh, reality TV has heard you sing all of these styles as well. So you just you bring so much to um, the vocal arts besides just your operatic color. Do you have to approach those styles very differently? For me, it's not even an, it's I don't think I, it, it, I get asked this question a lot. And I always think it's a very good question. But for me, I don't think so much about the approach for me. And I know that I'm probably weird in this approach. It just feels like it's a part of me. So I just open my mouth and I sing. I think I, what, what happens for me is that I, I call upon all the experiences that I have had as a youngster, as a kid, with my grandmother and my aunt. You know, every Friday evening after school, Friday night was either at Big Mama's house or Aunt Brenda's house or Aunt Nell or Aunt Ruby. And we would they would they would play cards. All of them were teachers. And what would happen is they put on the radio and you'd hear Johnny Taylor or you'd hear Marvin Gaye or you'd hear, you know, you would definitely not hear any church music on that night. But because <laughs> my grandmother, no, no, no. But, but because my grandmother was a musician at our church in her car, all we heard was was gospel music. That's really all I heard. So for me, it's just calling upon what I remember hearing and feeling because I, as a Christian, I feel like the spirit never leaves you. And so I just recall on on those moments, the recollection is what did the spirit make me feel? And I tried to give those those moments of feeling and immediate connection to the audience when I open my mouth and I sing jazz or R&B or gospel. And I love sitting at the piano and playing too, so... Do you find that it's a different connection when you're accompanying yourself on the piano than having someone else play? Yes. I tell people most often, I don't think I'm that great of a pianist, but everybody else does. <laughs> but I, I find it that I'm more comfortable when someone else is playing for me who's really adept, uh, who's adept at being able to play in different styles. 
if they can't, then I'll play for myself. But most often, if I can find someone who knows the style well and who knows costume music, I feel that I am more adventurous and I'm more playful when I have someone else to accompany me. And I think the reason why and I just made this connection right now is that it takes me back to when my grandmother would play for me and I could just sing because my grandmother was a, a fantastic pianist. Uh, and so whenever she'd play for me, I could just explore and have fun. When I'm playing the piano, I have to really concentrate because I don't want to mess up. <laughs> uh, so, but I love, but I say that and I think I, I, as she would tell you, she can't play like me, which I think is hilarious because she really plays beautifully. Um, but what I think she means is that, you know, I have all these different ways that that come into my playing. My classical, my classical training comes into my gospel uh, and vice versa. And so, um, you know, anyway, yes, it is very different if I if I play for myself, although I will say when I play for myself, I pretty much know how I'm going to play. <laughs> so so I can be adventurous, too, but it's limited. <laughs> my singing is limited, you know, then. But if I have somebody else play for me, it's really a, it's just a, a, a playground. John, I agree with the people that say you're a wonderful pianist. And we'll circle back to how I know that in a minute. But before we talk about that. You, Carol mentioned reality TV, and I know that you auditioned for The Voice, didn't you? You yes. have to tell us about that. What was that like? It was an incredible experience. And to be honest with you, if I had the experience to do it all over again, I would audition for The Voice all over again. For a while, they were they were asking me, you know, because there are people in the in the show on the show who cast. So they have casting directors that'll reach out. For about five years, I was asked to do the show. And I never had the time because I was really busy <clears throat> doing opera and teaching and, and doing recitals and doing my own show, which I call the John Holiday Experience. Um, and then the pandemic happened in 2020, right after I had finished doing uh, Eurydice, the premiere at uh, Los Angeles Opera. And then I had gotten a call, which happened miraculously, I was at school teaching. This is another challenge sometimes of being of being me or any singer is that uh, uh, a person had dropped out of Xerxes at uh, Opera de Rouen in France. And I got called to take on the role of Xerxes there and uh, ended up having to come back home, actually, because, of course, all of France shut down. But anyway, all the pandemic happened and I got this call and I said, you know what? I'm not doing anything. Everything that I was planning to do has been canceled. And I have a strong desire to connect with people like that is really what I love to do. I would never say that I'm the world's best singer. I just would never. I I'm not that cocky. I just don't believe that. But what I do believe in is that I am really good at connecting with people and connecting with who they are, where they are. I meet them where they are. And I try to have this ascendant or transcendent uh, experience with them. And so I felt that this show was going to be one of the ways that I could do that. And one of my goals in life has always been, I have these smart goals, you know, these specific, mm -hmm. measurable, attainable, you know, all these smart, I wrote, write these goals down every year. And one of my goals, my long-term goal was like, I want to be the number one countertenor in the world. And then my best friend was like, well, what's the, what's the measurable for that? Well, I was like, well... I want to be in, this is way before I auditioned for The Voice, by the way. I was like, well, I want to be in everybody's home. And then he's like, well, how do you do that? And I was like, well, I don't know. And then comes the show. And I thought that helps me to get to this goal of being the number one countertenor. But also more than that, it's being in everybody's household. Um, and so I did this audition and I was really happy uh, with the outcome of it. 
being in the top five of the show, uh, one of the finalists on the show, working with John Legend, who has become a dear friend of mine. I met my fiance on the show, uh, Rio Suma, who was also on Team Legend. Uh, and I, I get to every now and then, I talk to John probably every week or every two weeks. You know, he and I are always in contact with each other, and he's very, very, very invested in knowing how I'm doing. In fact, just two days ago, one of the casting agents actually who who cast me for the show reached out to ask how I was doing just to check on me. So it is a sense of camaraderie, a sense of family. Uh, and I would do it all over again. It was so much fun. Well, and you gave all of us in opera world something really amazing to look forward to every week there for a while. And we Aww. loved supporting you in that journey. Mm, it was so much fun. Well, I had the chance as I was doing some research, I saw that you had done this TEDx talk called The mm -hmm. Monsters Under Your Bed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recommend that anyone out there who's listening look up John Holiday's website and we'll talk more about where you are on social media and uh, how to find you. But uh, this talk is so beautiful and you talk about uh, the strong women in your life who uh, raised you. You talk about the challenges of growing up as an other. Yes. As I put in quotes. And now you're performing the refugee in flight who is also yes. an other. How do you use that life experience in creating this character? Yeah, this this question is so beautiful and it might make me emotional even though you guys can't see my face, but- uh, Well, we're all emotional know, every time you sing this role. So we yeah, cry at the end of every night, so. This is something that is very close to my heart and Christine McIntyre, who's our director of this show, our fearless leader, uh, she knows this very well. You know, I, I grew up definitely feeling othered. You know, I was always, I was a bigger guy, always saying hi. Uh, that was, of course, when I was young, equated to being gay, even though nobody ever knew it because they had never asked me. Um, but then, uh, uh, you know, of course I came out and of, of course feeling othered, sometimes by the community and, and sometimes by some family, even though I, it, we have a fantastic relationship now. Uh, of course, you can imagine growing up mm -hmm. Southern, uh, and in the missionary Baptist, which is almost a little bit stricter or more strict than the Southern Baptist, you know, growing up in that uh, that denomination, you in know, small town, the, in a small in town, town yeah, Rosenberg, Texas, uh, and uh, definitely having that feeling of other, knowing that I was loved, but also having feelings of like I don't think that anybody really understands me, uh, and this character the refugee goes through that the entire evening trying to have people understand as i say to most people that he is just as worthy of love just as worthy of goodness and kindness uh, as everyone with whom he comes into contact and the character is so near and dear to my heart that literally you know the, the very last aria, you know, that I sing, uh, well, the only aria that I sing in the opera uh, happens in the third act. And it is really emotional for me because I try to make them understand how he is just trying to be loved. And he carries these stones around trying to give people magic. Uh, but the magic, in fact, I think is his love. It's not the stone. It's his love and how he wields his love in a beautiful way. And I try to play the character of the refugee with strength, also with this little imp nature, but also with devastation because there's this way that he is devastated because he can't have his brother with whom he 
has this beautiful relationship uh, and how the relationship with the controller is essential to his story. I mean, there's so many things that I can think of in my life as these people, you know, the controller in my life. I know who that would be, the, 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 my, the brother in my life. I mean, I certainly have a brother with whom, you know, uh, you know I can relate to in, in this. And uh, just having that nature of really knowing one's worth is not equated to one's socioeconomic status or one's size or one's color or one's uh, sexual orientation or denomination, but that your worth is simply based on the fact that you were born and you're worthy of it. So definitely I relate to this character and he sits at the center of my heart. John, I, you know, Carol and I talked a lot about this piece on a previous podcast and we were remarking about how when, Jonathan Dove wrote this music. He couldn't have known that there would be a 9-11 or a pandemic, two mm -hmm. things that would change air travel and airports mm -hmm. forever. I mean, these are incredibly liminal spaces where you are basically programmed not only to stay away from everyone else in there, but to forget about them. They're, everyone in there is by definition forgettable. It's a transitional experience being in an airport. Does mm -hmm. the modern airport and how different it is enter into your creation of this character? Is that part of your thinking? Hmm. I never thought about that. Uh, it's so funny, Jeff, because, you know, as an artist, I travel all the time. Right, right. And I will say maybe, you know, this is an interest. I've never been asked this question before, but I am someone <laughs> that I make friends with everyone. <laughs> um, in general, I, I, especially now, I try and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but because of the show, <clears throat> a lot of people know who I am now. And so sometimes I'll try to be, in, although I can't be incognito anymore. I, I, I walked through Times Square with my fiance and somebody recognized me and I didn't even look like myself, I didn't think. Um, but sometimes I try to sit far away and just kind of be quiet and still before I board. Or what, what I do most often, because I only fly Delta Airlines and uh, I have a membership in the, uh, what do you call it? The lounge. So all these lounges that I go into, I do know the people and they know me. So I have relationships with them. And so I think in a weird way, I, perhaps I do call upon that experience that I have from traveling and knowing people that uh, help to make me comfortable in these situations. It, it may translate into, into the opera. For example, there is a guy uh, when I'm in Minneapolis, when I go to the airport, I always go to the large. This is such a first world. I feel so bad <laughs> talking about it. But if I go to the lounge in Minneapolis, there's a larger lounge by the G concourse. This tells you how much I travel. And so I go into this lounge and there's always this guy there. I cannot remember his name right now. And I, and I shouldn't say it anyway, but I always speak to him and he always speaks to me. He's just just one of the nicest guys. Because when I travel, I always travel looking, you know, I look all right when I travel. Sometimes I wear my blue jacket. Sometimes I wear something else. But I, I try not to look like a bum when I travel, <laughs> even though sometimes I feel like it. Um, and so he's just become such a good friend of mine and takes such good care of me. And I think that in a lot of ways, his the, represent, the representation of him, if I were to equate him, it'd be the controller you know, in this situation, because he always, he always looks out for me. Uh, and then there's the, the, the lady, at, I think her, I can't say her name, I don't say her name. She's the, she's the bartender. I always, I love champagne. And so she always has champagne for me when I go, to, you know, 
So, I mean, I just always have somebody that I'm, I, I find. So the answer, I guess, in a long <laughs> winded way is yes, perhaps the modern airport world and situation does play into how I approach this role and the people in it, because in no way are any of the characters in this forgettable. And as you will see when you come see the show, there's so much that we do and they do to stay in the forefront of your mind. You're so perfect for this role, John. I think if you'd been in the game back in 1998, Dove would have demanded that you be cast. It's just you're so perfect for it. But um, we have a question that we like to end all of our opera discussions with. We ask this of everyone in that world. And I want to know if you have a subject in mind, real or imagined, that you think just absolutely needs to be made into an opera. Hmm. Wow. The one subject that I've always wanted to discuss and have more at the forefront of the American conversation is the story of Bayard Russin. A lot of people don't even know who he is, but if it had not been for Bayard Russin, um, there would have been no civil rights uh, walk. There would be no Million Man March on, on, on DC with Martin Luther King. He was Martin Luther King's right-hand man, leg legitimately, he really was. And he happened to be homosexual. And because of that, oftentimes he is left out of the conversation. But if you look at many pictures of the civil rights movement and the march and anything that Martin Luther King did, uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge, any of that stuff that you look at, he is right there. And that's a story that I really want to touch on. I look nothing like him, but the cool thing about uh, Bayard is that he was also a singer and sang opera. He wasn't well known, but he loved singing. You can, if you look up Bayard Russell and, and, and some of the documentaries that have been done on him, you'll find little clips of him singing leader or chanson. You know, it's just beautiful. Um, so I feel like that's a story that is an American story that should be told more. That's uh, John, thanks for sharing that. And that's something new for us to um, check out. Like you say, it's someone we don't know as well. Yeah. So I look forward to discovering about this gentleman. Um, well, we're thrilled to present Flight. And just I know that not everyone's listening to this in real time. But if you are listening to it, well, before our Flight production opens, it opens January 15th. And we run through January 23rd, 2022. So if you're in Utah and want to catch this amazing show, please do. Great please come. Still available. Yes. Um, and John, where can your fans that you already have and your fans that you are about to have even more of, where can they find <laughs> you on social media? You can find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's all the same handle. So it'd be twitter.com slash John Holiday Live. Facebook.com slash John Holiday Live. That's that's my username, John Holiday Live. You can't and, miss it. No. And then, of course, there's a lot of amazing media on your website, including yes. uh, this TED, TEDx talk that we referenced. So mm -hmm. we're thrilled that you took the time out on a busy week to come and join <laughs> us. We appreciate it so much. No problem. It's my pleasure.
Well, thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners. Be sure also to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances, including flight. We hope to see you there or at any of our live performances. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>